are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. This episode is hosted by Dr. Michael Viola, an associate professor at St. Mary's College of California in the Justice Community and Leadership Program and affiliate faculty in the Ethnic Studies Program, alongside Dr. Joy Salas, an assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State LA. Today's episode features Dr. Stephen Osuna, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Cal State Long Beach. As a professor, activist, intellectual, and mentor, Dr. Osuna teaches courses on immigration, critical criminology, social theory, and his research centered in a preferential option for the poor, social justice, and critical thinking. He is also a member of grassroots organizations that seek to make social change in the world to improve the conditions that many face, such as Human Rights Alliance for Child Refugees and Families, HRA, the International Migrants Alliance, IMA, IMA, and the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, ICHIP. Let's get this PPE going, y'all. life. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to PPE, <laughs> our, our podcast. Um, today, we have Dr. Stephen Ozuna with us, and he'll be co- having a conversation with me, uh, Joy Salas, and also Mike Viola. So I'll start with the very first question. So Stephen, what are you doing to find or retain joy during the coronavirus? Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to participate. You know, I really appreciate it. I'm humbled by it. Um, Finding joy, I guess, for me right now, since we just had a baby, it's raising uh, myself, Fidel. Uh, He's three months old. So it's taking up, you know, obviously a lot of our time to be around them and just watching them grow in these last three three months. Uh, I think that's a lot of joy, to be honest, right? To just see him, them just develop and just see their eyes open up and seeing them smile and laugh. I think, you know, I was, the first month I was waiting for them for that. Right? I was waiting for that, for them to smile and laugh, right? When are you going to smile? When are you going to laugh? You know what I mean? Like they just, <laughs> just stared or, or they just had their eyes closed, you know? And I was like, when's that, when that, when's that laugh going to come out? When's that smile going to come out? And, and like, it's out and now it's like nonstop, you know? And I think for me that, you know, given the conditions that we're up against right now, just having them around and seeing them smile and laugh, you know, and just even cry sometimes, right? The crying is, is, is brings joy because they could cry, right? We had some complications at first with this birth. Um, they're, you know, and they were having a hard time crying when they were born. So the fact that they could bolt out this scream now, it's like, yes, you know, we were very proud of that and very happy. So I think, you know, that's definitely one thing that's that's filling my, my joy up right now, right? 
another thing is just exercising. You know, like I, you know, I, I've always been an avid runner and I've enjoyed running. And for a long time, I stopped running. You know, for a year, I, I, I stopped running. I, I ran, I ran my last uh, LA marathon last year in 2019, and I said that was it. No more long, long distance running. And I realized that it wasn't good for me. I actually enjoy running, and it brings joy. You know. Um, the fact that, you know, whenever I'm stressed out or, or I just in my head about something, I'll just put on my shorts, put on my shoes and I go for a run, you know, go do five miles and those five miles and it's out. Right. And so after that five mile run, I mean, you, know, you get that runner's high, but it's even more than that runner's high. It allows me time to like think and process stuff, you know, and, and more so to run around the neighborhood we live in. Right. And, you know, I live in a working class neighborhood of El Sereno in Los Angeles. And just to see all the families hanging out and outside, you know, or watering their garden, their lawns, or just walking their dogs. You know, it just it brings back a lot of happiness to me. You know, I, I grew up in Echo Park, which is about five miles away from the neighborhood where I live right now. And same similar working class background, right? But you know, obviously gentrification has transformed Echo Park. But El Sereno or Sereno hasn't hasn't hit get gotten hit that bad yet. So it still has that working class feeling to it. Um so you know, I enjoy doing that as well, right? Um I usually try to read, but Marcel, Marcel is taking my time right now from reading. So um, I try to pick up a book and I just can't hold him and pick up and hold the book at the same time. Right. So it's either him or the book. Yeah. And, um, but, but I could hold my phone. So at least I, you know, it may be not good for my eyes, but I read through my phone. So like, you know, I read the news articles and stuff and academic articles. And I'm really enjoying reading this one Spectre journal right now. This just thing just came out. It's really good, really good articles, really Marxist analysis, you know, the, mature conditions right now so yeah just you know reading running and myself yeah and spending time with rose obviously my partner right and watching movies and we've been enjoying a lot of streaming online right um so a lot of shows that we watched so yeah oh also happy enjoy. belated birthday thank you thank you yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Your birthday, Steven? Uh, it was december 27th it's just passed on sunday so for example on sunday i you know i ran a half marathon you know, I, I, I trained myself to run a half marathon. I had two, two part comrades run with me. You know, that was out of nowhere, right? They said, oh, we, we want to run with you. So in solidarity, they ran with me, right? They, one of them, that was their first time running a half marathon. And, you know, they ran around the, the Rose Bowl, a couple, a couple laps around the Rose Bowl. And that was really cool because then, you know, a couple of family members and other comrades surprised me at the end, right? So they were there and, you know, it just meant a lot, right? And I, I think, and they know how much running means to me. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a really good, um, place to reflect and be like I just turned 39 so this is my last year my 30s right so um just to be like you know I could still do a half marathon and, and still be breathing at the end of it right and I'll be fine so yeah it's, it's a blessing definitely oh, yeah. happy happy belated thank you uh, so <clears throat> tell us a little bit about um you write a lot about uh black radicalism uh scholar your your scholar activism is like for we've asked this for a lot of folks is it informed by your own life experiences uh you center you know la and your upbringing and your work i mean can you elaborate a little bit more about like your life experience and how that's informed some of the questions that you're uh, examining in your in your research pro program sure um you know, it's always, obviously the very beginning, the, the, it's, it's a preferential option for the working class, right, in my research. You know, I, I try to situate it that way, right, that, you know, our work and our scholarship should always have that preferential option for the, the oppressed and the working class. And that obviously comes from my own background on my, you know, I grew up in, like I mentioned, I grew up in Echo Park, uh, single mom, right, she, you know, she's a Mexican migrant. Uh, my dad migrated from El Salvador, but they weren't, 
they weren't together. Um, so, you know, I grew up with my mom. Uh, you know, my mom was a domestic worker, right? She, you know, she migrant domestic worker, cleaned the houses in, in Los Feliz and, and Pasadena and, and um, Woodland Hills, right? So I'd go with her during the summer and, and winter breaks, right? She didn't have a sitter, so she'd take me with her, you know, and I'd watch her clean the, the floors, right? I'd watch her clean the houses of these elites, right? And, you know, I think that really was was important for me to to, to, to see the differentiations of class, right, of, of, of neighborhoods, you know, and, and obviously at the time you're a kid, you're growing up, you don't have the language for it, but you see there's a difference, right, and there's a access to certain things, right, um, so that, you know, that was very important for me, and then my mom, you know, every, every, every uh, winter break also, we would drive out, we should not drive out, we fly out to Mexico, right, so my mom would take us to the town she grew up in, in, um, in Sinaloa, in Mexico, um, and that also, you know, informed me, right, to see the fact, the impoverishment of where she came from, right, and I think, for her, it was really important for me to see that, and my brother to see where she was from and 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 the and the conditions that she left, right? Um, yet at the same time, see the, the the happiness of my family down there, right? The fact that yes, they're living in these conditions, and it's not necessary to romanticize it, but to understand that you know that their conditions didn't didn't um, define them, right? Um, and I thought that uh, that was um, important. Um, so. You know, I think that's that's one important section of it. But I also think, you know, growing up in Echo Park in Los Angeles, right? Uh, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, like I mentioned, was was a mixed class, but it was obviously predominantly working class. And is, you know, most of my friends' parents were either gardeners, domestic workers, right? Um, working in the service sector, right? And this is again, this is a late late um, 80s, 90s period, right? When the the service sector was booming in Los Angeles, right? The, there was a deindustrialization in LA and the, the, the rise of the service sector economy. I saw a lot of people were working in the service sector. So that, you know, again, they didn't have that language, but I understood that there is, we, we, were, a, we, we were different from what, what the houses that I'm on clean, right? Um, you know, and so that, that really shaped, you know, my, my understanding of that. But, but in, in Echo Park, one thing that's, that was a was stark, you know, thing that, that really hit me was the LAPD. Right, growing up and being profiled by the police in Los Angeles, right, and more so being profiled by Latino police officers, you know, that to me was 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 interesting, right? Because you know, we only talk about white supremacy in the police. You're assuming that all police officers are white, but not in Echo Park, right? The majority of them were Latino police officers, right? and and so they and 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 we were profiled by them, right? And you know, specifically the Rampart um, district of the LAPD, right, which you know has a history of the Rampart scandal, right. And the Rampart scandal happened during the period that I was growing up, right? So the late 90s, right? I graduated high school in 2000. So that was the peak moment of the Rampart scandal. And we pretty much lived it, right? We saw it. So, um, you know, that really influenced my, my understanding of the world. I remember, you know, when I, when I graduated high school, I went to Belmont High School. I graduated and I was accepted as a special admit to the EOP program at Cal State LA, right? I didn't have necessarily the, the GPA to get in, but I was a special admit. So, you know, they let some folks get in even if they don't have the requirements and that was me right and, you know I graduated high school with all D's you know I barely made it out but they, they gave me this opportunity um and during the summer they asked us to do a research project and you know we, we were given to develop a research question teaches us how to do research and I did the rampart scandal and, and then I now I reflect on that and I'm like wow look, even since at 17 18 I already was interested in studying the police and studying criminalization Right, because of what they had to mention, my own personal experiences shaped me, right? Um, you know, and, and really, really 
understanding popular culture and relationships to that. Because I remember in that paper, I cited Cypress Hill saying, you know, that they talk about the, the, the biggest gang is the LAPD in Los Angeles, right? And that, that to me was already, you know, I, t- I really wish I had that paper, you know, that research paper to reflect on it now that I'm older in academia, right? To think that young Steven was interested in studying this stuff way back when, right? Now, my trajectory wasn't academia though. I was, you know, I was interested in, I was interested in education, but I was interested in primary school. I wanted to teach at an elementary level. Um, I worked in elementary school in the neighborhood I grew up in, right? So um, that also was really important because I got to see, you know, the kids that, that reminded me of myself growing up, right? Their parents' struggles, right? Their, you know, their parents, my, some of my students had their kids, their, their parents being incarcerated, right? I remember one incident where I'm walking one of the uh, kindergartners back to the bus, you know, a police, op- police car pulls up and, you know, he's, he's wants, the, the child wants to hold my hand, so he's holding my finger, right? you know, small little hands, he's holding my finger, and as we're walking to the bus, I feel his fingers just grip me even harder, and I'm like, what, what's wrong? And he looks towards the police, and he's like, those are the people that took my mom, my dad away, right? So this, 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 he already was internalized that trauma, right? That feeling of like this police are not people that serve us, right? So, you know, all these little things, I think back and I reflect and I'm like, you know, that's really what informed how I think about studying um, criminalization and policing today, right? Because um, that's, you know, my, 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 I went to Cal State LA, I did my, my BA in Chicano, Chicano Studies, and then I received an MA in Chicano, Chicano Studies. Um, and, you know, that, that was background interest just to study the, you know, the history of, of, of where I'm from, you know, people that, that look like me, right? Um, but obviously, I'm also Salvadoran. So, you know, I'm, I was always interested in Central American issues, too. But that wasn't covered in Chicano, Chicano studies, but because they covered Chicano history, Chicano history, right? So it wasn't necessarily that that was their limit, but that was that's not what they do, right? Um, but what 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 they did do was provide me the, the frameworks and the methods to think about Central American issues, right? So on my own, I was able to study issues of El Salvador, right? Um, but more importantly, I also learned about El Salvador through social movements, right? I, at a year at, um, in my 20s, I participated with the, the leftist party of El Salvador, the FMLN. I was, a, I was a, a youth member of the party, right? Um, and, you know, there I learned, there I really learned about like Salvadoran radicalism, right? And the importance of Salvadoran radicalism, right? And I think, you know, Chicano, the Chicano studies degrees really taught me about like history and politics, but I think the Salvadoran activism really taught me about like Marxism and, and really understanding the history of socialism and communism. Right. And, and how that's how do we apply that scientifically? I think that's why I started to grasp that aspect of it. Right. And combining those two things together, um, which led me then to my, my Ph.D. in sociology. With uh, emphasis in black studies, as you mentioned, right, and that was because I was able to opportunity to work with uh, Cedric Robinson, Gay Johnson, right, um, Clyde Woods, George Lipsitz. Right. And, and learn from them, you know, and, you know, my degree was in sociology, but it, but but oftentimes our home was in black studies for a lot of us, right? Cause you know, we were learning through sociological ap- approaches, but really what we were trying to understand was issues of black studies, right? Um, and I think that really informed how I do my work today, right? So like really like the ethnic studies degrees, the ethnic studies training has been, has informed my sociological training, right? Um, and sometimes I'm in spaces where folks are like, you're too sociological. When I'm around ethnic studies folks, I'm too sociological. But then when I'm around sociology folks, you're two ethnic studies, right? So I'm like, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't I'm, I'm in between, I guess, right? But, um, you know, again, the interest of studying criminalization, but through a materialist analysis of criminalization, right? So not just, um, um, not just studying it superficially or studying it through policies, but the structural conditions that lead 
to criminalization, right? To, to, as a solution to crisis, right? Um, and so that's what have been my interest, you know, and that's the type of things I studied. But given that I, again, that my mom's experiences of migration, my own travels to Mexico and El Salvador, it really informed me to think of this transnationally. How, did, how does criminalization affect people transnationally, right? So not just studying LA, but LA as a hub of transnational migration that's been criminalized from the very beginning that they migrated, right? So in El Salvador, in Mexico, like, and how that criminalization process crosses borders and affects people across borders. So those are the type of things that I'm interested in currently working on right now. Yeah, so that actually leads like really beautifully into the next question. Um, which is about, you know, what you are working on right now. And I also want to highlight the article that you published this year um, in Race and Class, Transnational Moral Panic. Um, I know you presented it recently um, for your alma mater. <laughs> um, and um, I wasn't there, but I was there when you presented, um, I think, earlier in the pandemic. And I got to hear um, more about, you know, your work um, the, the, about, you know, transnationalism um, and criminalization. And can you talk more about the research, uh, that research and the work that you're um, doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. So again, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm interested in studying, you know, criminalization transnationally. What I mean by that, again, how, how does the process of criminalization cross borders, right? And how do um, the, the policies, but only the practices and, and, and the conceptions of who is the criminal. And so this article that you mentioned that, that's in recent classes about um, the criminalization of Salvadoran youth that's been laid there, obviously labeled MS-13, right? Um, and, and known as the most dangerous gang in the world. Um, and my interest in studying that was that, right? Again, the, the conception of the most dangerous gang in the world, right? Who gave it that concept, that title, right? Who gave it that name? Um, um, yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> um, he wants to he wants to add some comments too. Um, um, so yeah, yeah, back back to the uh, yeah. So the the topic started a long time ago. Against growing up in the neighborhoods I grew up in, um, and Salvadoran youth being criminalized way back when. But it it came up the surface again under this period under the Trump administration, right? He MS thirteen was one of the main things he'd always use to talk about um, why we need a border wall, why we need to be tough on, on, on immigration, right? Because there's MS-13 all over your neighborhood and they're going to take over everywhere, right? In reality, the most people being deported are not, have nothing to do with MS-13. Uh, the people that are being caged have nothing to do with MS-13, right? But at the same time, this is not to deny or ignore the fact that there is issues of, of violence in Central America that stem from, from gang violence, but Oftentimes it gets stuck there, right? The study of, of gang violence is studied as, as, a, as, a, as a topic, gang violence, rather than studying the material conditions that produce it, right? Or the history of US imperialism in Central America, right? Even when we study MS-13 or gangs in Los Angeles, for example, oftentimes the, the, the discourse, even if it's liberal or critical discourses, well, Salvador youth migrated because of the war, they arrived in LA, and once they were in LA, they were bullied by black and Mexican gangs. So they had to unite and create their own organization to defend themselves. That could be superficially true. And that, that's not to deny that. But what are the material conditions in a city that have been deindustrialized for black and Latin Mexican youth to be part of gangs in the first place, right? And for them to be criminalized. And then for Salvadoran refugees to show up and had to deal with the same conditions of, abandon, of, of abandonment, right? Those are the conditions that lead to these 
developments of youth having to figure out alternative ways to socially, reprodu socially reproduce themselves, right? Because the top of the issue is social reproduction. How do you reproduce your everyday existence? And how do you survive under, under conditions that we oftentimes call neoliberal, right? Like conditions of austerity, conditions of privatization, right? Conditions of a deregulated economy, right? Conditions of, of social services being gutted, right? Um, conditions that where, where youth are not recognized as refugees in the first place, rather than they're seen, they're seen as illegal, right? So all these things are, are what produce these conditions, are produced, those conditions are what produce what we know now today as MS-13, right? And when we, and when we think of, of them in El, in El Salvador, you know, the country went through a, 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 an attempted revolution that didn't succeed, right? A, a, a civil war, but it was a revolutionary process that didn't yet didn't succeed in taking the state power and led, led to a, a ceasefire and, and a peace accord. But the peace accord was lopsided, right? Because what ended up happening is they put down their guns, but the economic restructuring happened, the neoliberal restructuring happened of the, the, the country. And that left, you know, again, a whole bunch of abandoned youth after the war and a whole bunch of deported youth that were deported back to El Salvador after the war to figure out how to survive on their own. And their own way of survival, what neoliberalism tells you to do, right? Figure it out. Figure it out on your own, right? That's what the, that's what the idea of neoliberalism is, right? Don't don't rely on the state. You're you're an individual. Figure it out. Well, the youth figured it out on their own. You might not like the outcomes of it, but they figured it out on their own, right? Just trying to surviving, whether it be through through selling drugs or selling weapons, selling whatever they need to do to survive, right? And again, it's not it's not a it's a it's an outcome of of neoliberal restructuring rather than pathological behaviors, right? Or, or antisocial behaviors, right? The antisocial behaviors come out of these conditions that, that, that I mentioned. Um, so, you know, that's just one element of, of a larger interest that I study again of transnational criminalization. I, I wanna think of criminalization as, as, as a solution to capitalist crisis, right? Global capitalist crisis in the region of Mexico, Central America, right? How, how these economies, how these governments that uh, restructure their economies leading towards a neoliberal path, then have to have to re resolve their own constructions, right? The own their own neoliberal development is being resolved through criminalization of those that they abandoned, right? So you know I, I've, I've used the, the concept of a surplus population from Marx, Marx, right? That capitalism, as more as it develops and more as it concentrated, produces a reserve army of labor, right, or a, or a surplus population. Right, but this surplus population has different sectors, right? And this sector that I'm looking at is that criminalized sector, right? That 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 the the, the gang member, right? Um, the 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 drug cartels, right? That oftentimes when we think of drug cartels, we think of these big names like a Chapo and these big head names, uh, like we watch on that, that show Narcos. But who are the low level folks, the everyday folks that that were once farmers, that were once peasants, that had to figure out an alternative because their farms were devastated? Right, there, there was no jobs or infrastructure to absorb them, so they had to figure out an alternative way of survival. Right, um, so these are the things that I'm interested in studying, um, and and also just looking at the development of the LAPD and its relationship to Central American communities and, and Mexican American communities. Right, because um, again, I, I've always seen the LAPD as 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 um, uh, James Baldwin talked about it, right, as an occupying force in these neighborhoods. Right, um, and even again, even if the police officers themselves are Latinx, right? And LAPD is over 50% Latinx. That doesn't take away the fact that they're still an occupying force, right? Because structurally, that's what they are, right? So in relate, how do we connect that to the political economy though, right? And, and so not just think of police just as fundamentally racist, 
but part of a capitalist system that upholds the, the capitalist order, right? And, and, the, and the relationships of production um, is what I've been interested in studying. And that's what I've been doing, you know, again, I, I um, you know, I, I graduated with my PhD and my dissertation in 2015, you know, I've been working on, on, on teach, I, I teach at, at Cal State Long Beach, you know, and it's a very teaching heavy school. So I relied more, more on my teaching. Um, you know, I've published a couple of couple articles that you mentioned, right? But the book project is on its way after after tenure. Uh, cross my fingers, right? Um, that's that's the the plan, right? That this project that I'm talking about develops um, after post tenure, and if Marcel gives me a chance to write, yeah. <laughs> can I uh, can I before I we ask the the next question. Um, I just want to take a moment in the sense of like you've named a couple of people, both people that um, possibly have mentored you in your grad program. Um, uh, Gay Teresa Johnson, you named James Baldwin. Do you want to take them or can I ask who are the people in your in your in your writing, whether it's your scholarship or your creative work that you pay homage to in terms of this work that you're doing both whether it's people you cite in your work or even people in your community that uh, yeah. you honor in your work. Yeah. Um, to... Well, academically, academically for sure is some um, Stuart Hall, right? I think a lot of the stuff I do, but the Stuart Hall from Policing the Crisis, I think Policing the Crisis really has really informed um, the book Policing the Crisis is really what's informed my understanding of, of what I'm talking about, right? Um, that article that Joy mentions, uh, the transnational moral panic, really builds off of Stuart Hall's Policing the Crisis, right? That he talks about mugging as a as a moral panic, right? And what I'm trying to push is the idea that. Um, MS-13 is a moral panic, but transnationally, right? Rather than just looking at one country and looking at the moral panic in the US of MS-13, we got to look at MS-13 as a transnational moral panic where Central American countries, Mexico, the US can all point the finger to this gang and say it's a transnational criminal organization. That, that's the threat, that's the problem, right? Don't talk about neoliberalism some of us don't even know what that word is, neoliberalism, but we know what MS-13 is, right? Um, so for me, Stuart Hall has been a big influential figure to understand. And obviously, if we, if we follow Trey Stuart Hall's framing, we go back to Antonio Gramsci, right? And, and, and his perspective of, of hegemony. And, and, um, and I think that, for me, has really informed my understanding you know, and, and analysis of that I take, right? A Marxism that's understanding of culture, right? A Marxism that's, that's open. To understanding cultural formations, uh, you know, definitely has informed me. Um, you know, but it, it goes back again, like I mentioned, the fact you know that I'm not necessarily writing about labor, but you know, positioning my work with an analysis from the perspective of the working class, right, and how the working class becomes criminalized, and oftentimes the working class itself follows alongside these these moral panics, right, because they themselves are the ones that are dealing with the problems, right. So, for example, when we think of of of, of gangs. You know they're coming from working class neighborhoods, right? Um, and oftentimes, the working class neighborhoods are the ones that want more police, oftentimes, right? Or, or say that we need police, not because they're pro police, but because that's all they've that's all they've known how to handle security, right? The idea of public safety, right? Our conception of public safety has been police, right? How do we define public, redefine public safety? Has been a topic of interest for mine, especially in this current moment, right? We're talking about right abolition and 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 the defunding of the police or the community control of the police. Um, these are all topics that are really relevant right now, but I've always had an interest in studying, right? Um, you know, and you think back, you know, hip hop has been a big influence on me, right? How do I talk about understanding the police, right? If you go back to the music that I listen to, 
you know, I wrote a, a recent article that came out last year was also about hip hop and the psycho realm, a hip hop group that comes out of Pico Union um, that also wrote about, talked about the police, right? So this article is about the understanding the Rampart scandal alongside the psycho realm, right? Using their lyrics as a content, a content analysis of their lyrics to understand how they saw the police, right? How their conceptions of the police, but not only the conceptions of the police, what is the solution? And for them it was revolutionary violence against the police, right? That the only solution is, is revolutionary violence. And where does that come from? That comes from Fanon, right? The idea of, of, of that the only solution oftentimes is violence, right? Um, and it is not, not, not to advocate as, a, as an academic here, but to talk about just the, how, how are people dealing with their condition, right? When, when, when you have no alternative, right? And then we've seen, you know, throughout history that the only solution is revolution, right? And so those are the topics that I've had interest in studying. Um, you know, I think also France, again, I mentioned France Fanon. Uh, I can't go back to Karl Marx, right? Marx is the one that's really influ informed me, right? And this not only informed me academically, politically, right? When I go back to mentioning El Salvador, who is the one that informed them? It's a Marxist-Leninist analysis of the world, right? Um, so, you know, Marxist-Leninism has really been an influential part of how I understand things. Mm. Thanks for that, Stephen. Yeah. Talk about neoliberalism in terms of the police state, uh, but then it's also connected to our work as academics. Yeah. Uh, you've yeah. done that. Yeah. I mean, just to frame a little bit in terms of the critical Filipino-Filipino studies collective is like a way for us uh, to navigate uh, an institution uh, that's a corporate business uh, that doesn't, <laughs> uh, that's figure it out. Uh, and that's not interested in a radical politic. Um, and so um, I wanted to just maybe ask in terms of, um, maybe in terms of your scholarship, but also maybe your solidarity work, what is it that brought you to thinking about Philippine solidarity? Um, one, and then maybe a second is like, what is critical? Like critical seems to be thrown in on everything. Critical ethnic studies, we're claiming it. Critical Filipina, Filipino studies. Um, so what does that mean for you as a, as a scholar activist? So, yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 will, I guess I'd start off with the critical part, right? For me, if, if we use the word critical, you know, I, I think it has to have, first of all, come from have an anti-imperial, being that we're in the United States, um, if we're going to use the word critical, it's got to have an anti-imperialist analysis, right, of, of, of the conditions that we're up against. Uh, the stuff we study, how we should have an imperialist, anti-imperialist line, uh, and whether if it's anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and anything we study. I always tell my students, like, if you're in interested in studying identity, that's cool, but your identity formation is often influenced by your capitalist conditions, and the conditions of capital have influenced how you study, how do you understand your identity, right, whether, and, 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 and that's fine, again, like, you could, I, I, if I want to understand how the development of this cup, you gotta understand the commodity and how it was produced and who produced it, right? And I, I might tell my students that's thinking critically, right? Thinking critically, understanding, getting to the root, right? So thinking critically also reminds me of thinking radically and radically means getting to the root of a problem, right? And the root are the material conditions from my, from my perspective, right? Um, and thinking through those lenses then, I think about my involvement. I always tell students, right? I'm, you know, my, if my job is to be an academic, but that doesn't end there, right? And if we really want to change the conditions, our paycheck's not going to change the world, right? We got to be actively participant in in, the, in, the, in trying to change it, right? And I mean, participating in grassroots organizing and grassroots efforts, right? Um, as the as academics, we're oftentimes against the wall trying to participate in activism and, and teach and, and write and do all these other things, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't do it. You just got to find creative ways of doing your activism and your, and your, and your involvement, right? 
And for, so as a graduate student, I had mentioned earlier that I was part of the, the youth sector of the FMLN. Um, part of our work was also try to develop a, a student movement in California that was a Salvadoran student movement, right? Because we noticed that mentioning thinking critically that oftentimes when, people, when, when youth were thinking about being Salvadoran or being Central American, it was more just nationalism, right? Being proud of who they were as, as, as Salvadorans, as Central American, but not understanding the true, the history or the political history of, of why are we even here, right? Why did you, why are your parents, why did your parents come? And the fact that you're Salvadoran is because your parents had to leave El Salvador, right? Um, and so our involvement in developing, you know, the um, uh, Salvadoran Student Union, La Unión Salvadoreña de Estudiantes Universitarios across California through the CSUs and the UCs from 2008 to 2014, I think it was a good period of time that we were organizing Salvadoran youth and taking them to El Salvador through, through for exposure trips and, and showing them what was happening in El Salvador and giving them uh, an anti-imperialist analysis, right? That if, if you're gonna be Salvadoran in the United States, you fundamentally have to be anti-imperialist, right? Because you, the fact that you're here is because of imperialism in El Salvador, right? Um, so that really grounded again, how I do my work and how I think about my, my scholarship and my activism and my teaching. Um, and, you know, given that we're organizing in Los Angeles, we came across the ND movement, right? The National Democratic Movement in the Philippines and activists here in Los Angeles. And, you know, we saw a lot of parallels between the Philippines and Central America. And we still see them, right? We see the president of El Salvador, Bukele, and the Duterte in the Philippines. You know, you could look at them together and be like, these are fascists, right? Um, and so, you know, there was always these parallels, right? And I, you know, I met some, some Kasamas and, you know, we started building together. And when I started working at Long Beach, I hit, I hit some of them up that lived in Long Beach, right? We started building and started inviting them to campus and doing events on campus. Um, we were talking about, you know, the, when, 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 he, when Duterte was elected, he was talking about the, um, negotiating peace, right? And there was a potential for the negotiations of, a, of peace, right? But then what happened? And obviously he turned the other way, but, but we did a presentation on that. We invited speakers to do that. And during, through that organizing efforts, you know, they asked me if I wanted to participate in developing a, a solidarity organization with the Philippines, right? So I was one of the co-founders of the of PUSO, right? The Philippine-US Solidarity Organization, right? Um, again, the importance of developing organization from the grassroots level, which is very difficult to do. We all know that, right? And it's, it's, it's painstaking work, but it, there's a lot of um, worth in that painstaking work. And that's why I try to get my students to think about, right? That, you know, that it's, a, it's, not, it's, not, it's not about celebrity activism. You know, it's, it's that everyday work of on the ground and, and talking to folks and building. And sometimes you gotta sweep the floor. Sometimes you gotta put chairs up. Sometimes you gotta, you're, you're speaking. Sometimes you're, you're talking to folks, you know, you're organizing folks. So I think all that stuff really informed uh, my understanding and, and my relationship to the Philippines, right? And I was able to, to take a, a trip last year. I was invited as, on behalf of the um, uh, uh, of IMA, International Migrants Alliance, uh, uh, IMA, right? Alliance. And so, you know, I got to go to the Philippines and, ex and experience, you know, just a few days where I was in Manila, but I was taken to um, the Baseco, which is one of the largest um, slums in Manila, right? And just to see the experience, the learn about people's experiences um, uh, and just make, make the connections, right? To see like, wow, like the slums and the, and the policing of the slums and its relationship, for example, with policing in Skid Row or the policing of youth in El Salvador, right? And seeing those parallels, right? Obviously there's, they got their distinctions, but they're using universal experience of exploitation and oppression that we could analyze, you know, um, and make those connections. And I really wanna 
make those connections for my students in their classes. You know, they teach a, a sociology of immigration and migration class. And, you know, I, I have them read Robin Rodriguez's work, right? And and in relationship to Lacey Abadego's work in El Salvador and talk about, you know, talking about the experience of the Philippines, talking about the experiences of Mexico, El Salvador, and really show them, you know, there's similarities, right? Because oftentimes a lot of my students are Latinx. So they think, just think about Latinx migration, Latino migration. I don't think about experiences of the Caribbean. They don't think about experiences of, of, of um, the, uh, yeah, the Caribbean, of migrants going to Spain, right? These are the issues that I want my students to think globally about, right? Um, really shapes them. And so I think when we think of a critical Filipina, Filipina, Filipino studies or in a Filip critical anything, I think it has to have an anti-imperialist um, materialist analysis of what we're up against, right? Uh, you, you have to have that, I think. Um, you know, and it's gotta be pro-people, you know? Um, so it's not necessarily just about a new phrase, a new concept, you know, that's catchy, uh, you know, funding for, you know, I always tell myself the funding thing, I work at a Cal State, I'm not even about the funding, you know, it's like, like we're not, you know, we're barely making ends meet. We're here because we wanna be here, you know? And and so, you know, I've, I've always been hostile to the idea of applying for grants, you know, I, I just do my work, you know, but, but, um. It's, 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 I think that's the important part, really having that commitment. And I think the only way we could do critical scholarship or critical work is if we're grounded with community, right? If we're grounded with, with grassroots organizing, right? And again, you don't have to be in the front lines, but you have to at least be in conversation with, with grassroots efforts to really understand the conditions, right? Because um, if we're just studying them from afar, uh, you're not really gonna be clear of them, right? I think for me, um, growing up in LA, analyzing the conditions of LA, but also being grounded with community organizations in LA has really informed how I write, how I think, how I teach, how I even mentor students, right? Um, to think about themselves after they graduate, what are you gonna do, you know? Um, you know obviously you can have a job, but are you gonna be active? Should you participate in something, you know? So yeah, I think that's what I, I think of when I think of the word critical. Shout out to Pusos too from Southern yeah, California yeah, all the way yeah. up to Puso Seattle. That's where yeah. I, I did some um, organizing work too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna ask the last question. And I think this is, I mean, out of all the questions, I think this is my favorite um, because I think it, you know, it asks us to really think about the future and it asks us to think about, you know, what, what can be changed and because the world that we are living in has to change. Um, so the last question is about hope. So Stephen, what are your sites of hope? My sites of hope. There's a lot of sites, but I think for one, you know, definitely the, the dignity of the working class, right? The, and the everyday experiences of the working class give me hope. You know, they're, you know, again, I don't, I'm not one to romanticize the conditions of the oppressed, but to see people survive and still be here and figure out ways of surviving, despite the tra the tragedy and despite the horrific conditions that they're up against, gives me hope. And right, um, uh, um, you know, I really am a strong believer in in in, in social movements and grassroots organizing. Right, um, I'm looking at the history of, of of revolutionary projects globally, really, and give me hope and and, and inspiration. I teach a a study abroad course in Cuba. And so every winter session, we travel to Cuba, you know, and, and, and that's given me hope, right? That the future is in the, the future is in the past in the sense that these socialist projects that had their mistakes still showed us potential about alternative, 
right? And in Cubas, there is the, there is the potential of an alternative that we could learn from. And I always get, might want my students to see that. Um, I, I find joy in that. I find um, hope in, you know, again, right not currently in Marcel's smile, right? And seeing them smile and, and, and just the, the, my child's smile makes me really hopeful. And, and also reminding me of the importance of organizing and struggling for an alternative, you know, because we have to now. And well, always, I've always had to, but I think more so now for me, you know. Um, yeah, you know, I think again, you know, I, I, I find inspiration and, in, in, you know, I, I found inspiration in my mother's experiences of migrant, of being a migrant here in the United States and, and you know, raising my brother and I on her own, you know, and the fact that she did it with, 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 with what little she had. You know, and it was never about what we didn't have, it was about what we had, right? And making use of what we had, you know? And, and I think that inspires me a lot, right? That oftentimes we are always thinking about what we don't have rather than finding what we have and building from what we have, you know? And so in organizing or, or thinking of the alternative, you know, um, well, an alternative society or thinking of, a, for me, a socialist society, how do we build those practices now, right? As we're moving towards a socialist society and organizing towards that, right? And you know, inspiring to see other countries like the Philippines and the movement in the Philippines, right? Uh, the Bolivarian revolution in, the, in, 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 in um, Venezuela, right? The struggles, the struggles of grassroots efforts in Mexico and in Central America. I think those inspire me a lot. You know, and you know, when I teach my students about these things, they oftentimes get caught up in the very negative, right? They always say sociology is so negative, makes us so depressed because you know, all you teach us are about the bad things. And I try to teach my st students dialectically. Right, that there's always a response to oppression and exploitation, right? That it always produces resistance. It always produces visions of an alternative. And, and that, you know, despite these conditions, people are always thinking about an alternative, right? The fact that um, the, the state represses not because it just represses, it's a response to people's alternatives. It re, it's a response to people that are striving for difference, right? Or as, as Michael mentioned about liberation, right? People already have liberation on the mind but it's constantly has to be repressed, right? And I, I, and I return that to Stuart Hall. I remember there's a, there's a piece that Stuart Hall wrote called The Struggle for Hegemony. And, and or is it George Lips? I think George Lips just wrote it, but he cites Stuart Hall. In it. And in, in it, he says that Stuart Hall once said that, you know, hegemony is never complete. It's always in crisis. And, and, it's, and, and every morning they have to send their ideological dog catchers out to catch those that are starting to question it. Right, and I and I think about that because when I turn on the news and you watch, for example, Fox News or CNN, they're the ideological dog catchers that are constantly trying to tell you that the system is fine, that we just got to tweak it a bit, that we just got to tweak it a bit, right? Why? Because people are already starting to question it, and so for me, I, I find hope in that, right? That people are questioning it, right? That when my students, when I first started, they had they were they were kind of like pushing back on an, on an anti-capitalist critique, right? But now they're open to it. Now it's kind of like, well, what's the, what's the alternative? That's where my students are right now. Now the students I get recognize that the system that they're living in is not on their side. They always, and I always ask the question, what side of capitalism did you wake up today? Right, where did you wake up? You know, how, what side of the bed did you wake up capitalism, right? Are you on the good side or the side that's, messing, that's beating you down? But now you have to convince them of the alternative. And I think we have enough case studies globally and historically to show them that there is an alternative and there's alternatives now, you know? And I think that, for me, I find hope in that, you know, and and yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, that's the that's the hope I have, you know. I think that that there that the potential is there, you know, and, and we just got to keep organizing and keep you know, keep grinding, you know, and and 
And if students see hope in you and, inspire, and, 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 and the drive that you believe in this alternative, that moves them, right? And I always tell that to them, right? I think, I think that if I was to go into the classroom and teach my students in a way that's just like, more, like a lot of intellectuals that are just very, just like pessimistic of the world, you know, that this pessimism, what am I teaching my students? Pessimism, you know, and, and, and I have, um, you know, I always have this, 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 this um, saying from Gramsci, you know, in my mind, right? Pessimism, pessimism of intellect, optimism of will, right? You could be critical. Again, we want us to we want students to be critical with their intellect and that, that they're all intellectuals and they could criticize and analyze the world around them and the conditions, but they should be optimistic in social movements, right? I have optimism that they could challenge the system that they live in, right? I have a balance of both, right? You can't be too optimistic because then you're not studying the conditions around you, but then you can't be too pessimistic because then you don't think that could be changed. Right? You got to have a balance of those things. And I think, you know, trying to get my students people that I organize with, myself included, to constantly rethink that and think that and, and self-check, right? And, and self-criticize uh, if I ever fall into the pessimism or if I'm too optimistic, I really have that, um, that, that in mind, you know? And I think, um, you know, I, I wrote, as I wrote in that, I wrote that one chapter in The Futures of Black Radicalism on class suicide, right? We are academics. And so like, you know, I'm in a position that my community that I come from was never been invited to participate in, right? Like I'm in a university setting where, you know, like, again, you know, my, my family, I think I'm the one, out of my friends, I'm, I have a PhD, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, I, obviously that's made me from a, up, you know, upward mobility, but what does that upward mobility do to you socially and ideologically? And how do you challenge that every day, right? That you don't fall into the trap of, of the class seductions, right? And, and, and really work towards continuing having that proletariat analysis of the world, you know, and I, and, and that gets hard when you're living in comfort, right? Um, and, and how do you work to challenge that every day, I think is an element that oftentimes not discussed in intellectual spaces because it's a given that you are now an academic and you're not supposed to be like them. You study them, you're not them. But what about if you came from them and you're still with them and, you, and your worldview is them, you know, that's, so my view is, 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 is inspired by that, right? That I have hope in humanity, right? And hope that that people, you know, do see their exploitation and want to challenge it. So, yeah. I'm gonna uh, just say thank you, Stephen, for uh, offering us a window to the radical, um, the radical scholarship that you're engaged in. That's in dialogue with with communities. That's written from the standpoint of um, uh, the, the oppressed and the marginalized and the working class, uh, and then for offering us a window, but also your students, um, uh, a living model of uh, what it looks like to not only critique, uh, but to create um, in your everyday struggles, uh, uh, an alternative, uh, what an alternative classroom can look like, what an alternative pedagogy um, that's offering us hope for a different tomorrow. So much uh, gratitude for this session. Yeah, thank you so much. I was also just like listing in my head the things I want to add to my pedagogy after listening to you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I also want to enroll in your class that goes to Cuba. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yes, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think we all should. I, I, you know what, again, man, when, I, when, that, when they asked me if I wanted to teach that class, I was like, what do you think? <laughs> like, of course I do. You know, like 
you know, unfortunately this year was canceled given the, the pandemic, but, um, you know, hopefully it starts again next year, right? And, you know, yeah, if you all want to come, come on, let's, let's go. All right, I got that still on recording, so I... I yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I you it's that. on the record. <laughs> it's on record. It's on record. It's on record. recording now, though. Yeah, okay. Yeah.